it was a weird night's sleep, so I don't know what, uh, it was just one of those kind of nights where I'm foggy-headed this morning, but I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit can, I know He can, He works with that uh, all the time, even when I feel like I'm at my best, He um, works in spite of me, so I'm entrusting these few minutes to Him um, with my mouth and my mind. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 sort of sets the tone for where we're going to be this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, 5 Verse 15 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. That's the tone for the section of scripture that we've been in um, for the few weeks leading up to the holidays and on one Sunday since the holidays. We've been in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6 in a section of scripture called the household code. And really it's about equipping the Christian home to move wisely. The Christian home is full of these various roles of people serving in different ways. And this passage that really begins, um, I think, begins there in verse 15. The details begin in verse 22, speaking to wives and then husbands and then to children and then to parents. And now this morning, speaking to slaves and masters. And I'll explain why that has a relevance for us as we go. Let's look at our passage beginning in verse 5 of chapter 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And verse 9, to masters, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. The passage, as I mentioned just now, begins in verse 22, the household code. And it's a passage, the household code is full of these things that are called imperatives. Imperatives are commands. And there are a series of commands that are given to different role players within the home. The first one in verse 22 begins with wives. And the command for wives is submit. Wives, submit. The next command is for the husbands in verse... We have an amber alert. It must be, wow. Everybody gets to check their phones. Doesn't matter if they're muted when an amber alert goes off. I guess. (laughs) I reckon we'll give everybody's phones a minute to calm down. Okay, wives submit. That was was some sort of response to wives' submission. (laughs) Alarms going off everywhere. The first command, wives, submit. The second command is for husbands in verse 25. Husbands, love. The third command is for children in verse six or chapter six, verse one. Children, obey. And the next one is in verse four of chapter six. Fathers, a negative command, don't provoke. And then today we're going to add two more commands to our list of commands within the household code. Servants, obey. And masters, in verse nine, do. And over the course of the morning, we'll make sense of what those look like. 
But before we press on and sort of unpack this passage, I want to address the issue of slavery. It's not an occasion very often where you have a chance to preach on slavery, so I want to take a moment and address slavery. Okay, It makes sense. I think we should. Uh, I want you to notice, you may have noticed already, that Paul doesn't address slavery as a good or bad thing in this passage. He's simply speaking to slaves and speaking to masters. So we could ask the question, does his silence then condone slavery? And knowing, too, that he's speaking on behalf of God, does that mean that God somehow condones or approves of human slavery? I don't think so. In case you're wondering that, in case you're anticipating uh, that it does, I don't think so, and I don't think so by a mile. See, slavery was part of life in the ancient Roman Empire, period. It was a central part of life. The ancient literature gives no sense that anyone even thought to object to slavery, that anyone even considered an alternative to slavery. No one really even discussed in ancient literature the the notion of whether or not slavery should or should not exist. It makes me think of the saying that fish fish don't really know they're wet. Okay, There's a sense, as these guys are communicating with each other, as Paul is speaking to slaves and masters, that they don't even really know that they're wet. It was so much a part of life in the ancient Roman Empire and before, it's about 1,800 years or so, 1,900 years or so earlier, that Joseph was sold into slavery and found himself in Egypt. It was a part of ancient life, period. There's not a lot of writing objecting to it. Now, there is a lot of writing in ancient literature speaking to how slaves should be treated Now, I'm going to share just these next couple of minutes with you as a deposit for something that's going to land, hopefully squarely, at the end of the morning. It might sound like just sort of interesting side trivia right now, but I think it's going to come full circle by the end of the morning. There was a lot of literature, a lot of writing about how slaves should be treated. There was a man named Seneca who was an ancient Stoic. Some of you have Uh, been studying ancient literature, may have studied a guy named Seneca. This is the guy I'm speaking of right now. He said in regards to slaves, listen to what he said. He sort of has a diatribe going with an imaginary person here. And here's what the imaginary person says. They says, no, or excuse me, these people are slaves. Seneca responds, the Stoic responds and says, no, they are human beings. This imaginary person says, these people are slaves. He says, no, they are those with whom you share your roof. See, that's why this is being included in the household code section. Because slaves and masters, that was going on right in the home. They were part of life in the home. No, they are those with whom you share your roof. These people are slaves. No, Seneca says. When you consider how much power chance can exert over you both, they are fellow slaves. Seneca basically says the ground is real level in the home there, so treat your slaves well because chance is the only reason you're not a slave and they're not your master. He even capitalizes chance like it's a god almost. He goes on to say, treat those whose status is inferior to your, to your own in the same manner as you would wish your own superior to treat you. It sounds like the golden rule, doesn't it? 
from a guy that's a Stoic. And maybe if you haven't studied ancient uh, philosophy, you don't realize that Stoics are not Christians. Okay, we're talking about pagans. Pagans are saying, treat your slaves well. And pagans are saying, treat your slaves like you would want to be treated. Pagans, in some ways, are applying the golden rule. It's fascinating when you think about it. Just really consider that. The ancient message emphasizing the humanity of slaves from this guy is coming from a guy who's not a believer. And he identifies chance as that great leveler that should be the motivation for treating a slave like he would want to be, like you would want to be treated if you were in his or her shoes. This is a very important point. It may have felt like a little side point, but it's going to come up later. I want you to remember what... um, Seneca said, the Stoic, when it comes to slavery, let me encourage you in this, a bunch of modern folks, we together need to set aside what we think about when we hear the word slave as we're reading this passage, as we're studying this passage this morning. The grotesque American slavery imagery that comes to mind really is not a reflection of slavery in the context of this letter to the Ephesian church. Slaves in this time could own property Okay? Slaves in this time, 2,000 years ago, in the ancient Roman Empire, could own their own slaves. I can just imagine how that would go down. You know, the master tells the slave to do something, and the slave turns to his slave and says, okay, go do what, the, go do what my master said. It sounded like something my older son would, would work out with my younger son. Say, okay, I hear my chores. You go do my chores for me. Slaves could own their own slaves. Slaves could actually take other employment in addition to their job. And slaves were often buried in the same plots as the families that they served. So you can understand why this is being addressed as part of the household code. They were part of the family. One-third of ancient Italy and Greece was made up of slaves. Slaves. One-third It's a bunch of fish that are just wet. They're just wet. Daily life as a slave in the ancient Roman Empire meant also that you had something to eat and you had a place to live in an ancient context where that wasn't guaranteed. So I want to encourage you two things, or a couple things. There are a couple of dangers with a passage like this. And one is the obvious one. It might be the one that I'm sort of, uh, it might be the one that you hear people object to in the workplace. Man, I can't read a Bible that condones slavery. I can't believe in a God that somehow condones slavery. Okay, I want, uh, this is the first danger, to dismiss the passage as irrelevant because it addresses people who are participating in something unknowingly that is abhorrent to us, human slavery. Okay, that's the first danger, is to dismiss it altogether. And the second danger, which might be the easier one for us, We can make a beeline to the employer-employee relationship. And we're going to go there by the end of the morning, but we're not going to make a beeline to there. But it's a danger to make a beeline to that without first developing the importance of the message then. And it is profound if you go with me and you stick with me over the course of the morning. So we're not going to dismiss this passage as irrelevant. We're not going to fall prey of these two dangers, fall prey to these two dangers. We're not going to dismiss it as irrelevant. And we're going to do the work of sorting out what it meant then. 
And then and only then will we see if we can make some application to our context. Okay? So I want to take a closer look at what's being asked of Christian slaves and Christian masters in these next few minutes. It's going to be a very light treatment. And then we're going to land with four ways that I think that we can apply this. Four things that are, I think, beautiful applications for us. But first, we're going to unpack the passage. I want to encourage you to do something in these next few minutes. I want you to imagine that you are slaves and masters for these next few minutes. I'm going to speak to you directly. So I need you to sort of jettison AD 2018 and put on AD 50. And just imagine that we're all wet. We're all part of this system of slavery, and um, we may not may be slave or master. You can put on both in these next few minutes and hear what they heard, and then maybe we can understand what it will do or what it will have to do with us. Okay, to slaves. I'm going to read our passage again, and then I'm going to unpack in some ways the first, uh, or these first few verses, verses 5 through 8, and then we'll treat masters separately in verse 9. Slaves. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. This is that first imperative that I mentioned to you this morning of our passage that we add to these other imperatives. Slaves, obey. Now, before we really consider how that's going to play out, what this passage tells us about what it means to be an obedient slave, first of all, I want you to just, since you've put on AD 50, I want you with me for the next few minutes to just be wowed by the fact that God through Paul is speaking to you as a slave. I want you to just think for a minute. God, through Paul, is speaking to you as a slave. He also spoke to children earlier. That's a marvel. And in front of that, he also spoke to women. We're talking about a context 2,000 years ago where women were viewed in their culture to not have the same footing as men. And children certainly weren't viewed to have the same sort of value as an adult. And in some homes, they were treated like little slaves. And then add to this marvel that here, slaves are being spoken to directly. You would imagine that if it was a a cultural message, that the masters would be addressed. And we're going to tell you what to do, masters, and then you pass that on to your slaves. We're going to tell you what to do, men, and then you pass that on to your women. We're going to tell you what to do, all you parents, and then you pass that on to your kids. But think about how unique this is in the church where a message is going down here where the slaves are being addressed directly. Man, if you're not shocked right now, you need to get back in AD 50 and go, what? You mean there's a message for me? You mean I'm culpable as a slave? Man, you mean that I... I have some instruction here from my creator, and it doesn't have to pass through my master? Man, let me really enjoy that instruction then. Let me pay attention to what's being, what I'm being charged with. And it sounds like so far I'm being charged with obedience to my earthly masters. Man, obedience. And there's some phrases here and some, some words that follow. It's a massive sentence. Paul has a habit of doing that. So I'm going to just see if I can kind of help you unpack this sentence. What's being instructed here? Obedience with fear and trembling is the first prepositional phrase that it sort of explains it. And then the second prepositional phrase is with a sincere heart. With fear and trembling is with an attitude of respect for the authority given masters. With an attitude 
of respect for the authority given to masters. And with a sincere heart means with singleness of heart. Slaves, you're being called to obey your masters with sincerity of heart, singleness of heart, with fear and trembling, recognizing the authority given your master. And then the motivation there in that next, that last part of of verse 5, as you would Christ. The Christian slave, you're being called to serve Christ as you serve and obey your human masters. That's how you serve Christ, Christian slaves. And here's the cool thing is as inconsistent as they are, Christ is consistent. As faithless as they may be, Christ is faithful. As disappointing as they may be, as capricious even they may be, Christ will not be. So he's your target, slaves, as you serve your earthly masters. You follow and serve Christ. And then there's a negative explanation followed by a positive explanation. Here's the negative explanation. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers. That's there in verse 6. Not serving to attract the master's attention. Hey, look, master, look at me doing my chores over here. Look at me doing my job. Not doing only what the master can see and then cutting corners when the master's not around. But instead, the positive explanation, the second part of verse 6 there, move as a servant of Christ while you serve man. Doing God's will while you work in that situation, doing your master's will. And rendering that service with goodwill, working as unto the Lord instead of working for man's approval. Man, man's approval won't be and shouldn't be the goal for you, slaves. God's approval is the goal. And then in verse 8, there's a reason. There's a reason that the slave should follow through on this is serve knowing God sees how you're moving and serve knowing God that will straighten out the crooked, that will reconcile scales that are not even in the end, and he will bless you as you serve well. Now in verse 9 for masters, masters do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. We can add this last imperative in the household code that masters are to do the same. Now, if you've been paying attention in this last section, you might, try and, you might be asking the question, what does do the same mean? What, is this, what are masters supposed to do? Obey? That's what was being charged with, or that what was being commanded of the slaves. Are masters being commanded to obey? That's not what's being commanded here. What's being commanded of the masters here is that they serve the Lord as their central motivation as they lead and treat well their servants. That's what's asked of the servants is that they're focusing on Christ as they serve man. So that's what's being asked of the masters. Focus on Christ as you lead man. Have the same kind of attitude that is commanded of the Christian slave that your service to the Lord condition how you treat your slaves, masters. And then there's a central, a centerpiece to the master's charge. Um, the motivation is that you actually share a master. The passage reads exactly, he who is both their master and yours. 
Your shared master sees how you move, and he's not partial to man's hierarchy, our rank, our station. He is our shared Lord, whether slave or free, whether child or parent, whether man or woman, whether Jew or Gentile. That's the point. Given that, masters, there's no place for threatening leadership. There's no place for manipulating people. There's no place for demeaning people or scaring them into doing what's being asked of them. After all, God does not do that with you, does he? Masters. Now, our takeaways. Here's where I want to spend the rest of the morning. I know that's a little clunky. That whole section there is a little clunky. I get it. It's a little dry. If you stuck with it, if you got the gist of it, I think you have enough goods to consider in these next few, next few minutes how we can apply this passage. There are four ways, and they are, I'm going to give them to you and help you with them in order of increasing importance. Okay, so the first are sort of nice little tidbits, I would call them. And unfortunately, it's where we usually only land. Okay, but they're nice little tidbits. They're important, I think. They're helpful. And here's the first. If you're an employee... In 2018, you can come join us back in in, in, AD 2018. If you're an employee or a staff member or a crew member in 2018, if you work for someone, okay, in 2018, there's some great lessons to learn from the ancient slave, from what's being commanded of the ancient Christian slave. Is anybody working here for anybody? I hope, I think we've got probably a room full of folks. Move in a way that pleases Christ as you work for man. Man, that's a lob. Move in a way that pleases Christ as you work for man. And notice there's no qualifier here that it has to be Christian man. Work for man, period. As you work for man, move in a way that pleases Christ even if the man may not, your boss or your business or whatever, may be led by unbelievers. Let me encourage this. Maybe move in a way that pleases Christ if your boss or your business is not a Christian business, especially if they're unbelievers, move in a way that pleases Christ. What a great opportunity you have. You might think, man, I'm beat down with this terrible job that I have working for an unbeliever. (laughs) What an opportunity you have to show them what it means to follow Christ in that setting, to show them what Christ-fueled servanthood looks like as you serve them well. He is the target as you serve in that business. He is the aim. He is who you serve as you serve man. And if you believe that you're not being compensated for your efforts... Man, there's nothing wrong with asking for a raise, but man, you've got to land on this really good news that you can rest in knowing that your good service will be rewarded by God who sees. Man, the slave 2,000 years ago was encouraged with that good news. Here's the crazy good news for you. You've got two salaries as opposed to the slave 2,000 years ago. You've got the salary that you're seeing now, albeit it might be a whole lot less than you think it ought to be, but then you have this future salary that's coming to you, this future reward, this future blessing, one you're getting now and one you're going to get in glory for your good service now. So serve in your job as you serve the Lord now. Secondly, if you're an employer, first was to the employee, 
Secondly, if you're an employer or if you're supervising in any way, if you're running a business, if you're leading in the business setting, you have some great lessons to learn from the ancient, the command for the ancient Christian master. You see, you're commanded to move in a way that reflects that you too are a servant. Man, that'll condition how you give instruction, won't it? Thinking about how you've been instructed. That ought to condition how you lead, considering how you've been led by a good and gracious and patient God. Man, let that fuel how you lead and how you direct. What a great opportunity you have as you lead others to then serve them as you follow Christ. To serve them in a way that reflects your servant to Christ. Servant leadership is a fitting reflection of how you're led by our good God. Third, the tenor of this passage that we've considered today, just these couple of verses, the tenor and tone of this passage where slaves are addressed directly, okay, we just considered the marvel that women are addressed directly as wives, children are addressed directly as children, And now slaves are addressed directly. The tenor and tone of this passage. And then as a masters, as the masters here are reminded that they have a shared master, is that there are no slaves in the household of faith. Now, obviously there are because they're addressed here. But really there aren't. Here's what I want you to see. Remember they're in increasing importance. This is where things start to get more important in our points. And this one is really sweet. And this is going to be a blessing of us considering what it must have felt like, what it, how it must have hit those folks 2,000 years ago. There are no masters in the church. There are no bosses in the church. There are no employees in the church. There are no slaves in the church. There are no servants in the church. They're just brothers and sisters in Christ. You understand the point I'm saying? There are no wives in church. There's no husbands in church. They're just brothers and sisters in Christ. There are no children in the church. There's no parents in the church. There are just brothers and sisters in Christ. I've heard people baptize one after another where a parent baptizes their child and says, I baptize you, my son or daughter, and I raise you now as my brother or sister. Man, that's a beautiful point that comes out of this passage. The gospel is so great that it frees the slave of man and it enslaves the master of man. It frees the slave of man and says, man, you're not a slave in this house. And the master of man that steps into God's house and thinks he's still the master, he says, no, he's our master. And what a beautiful thing it must have been 2,000 years ago to to imagine what it felt like as these words were being read for the first time in the Ephesian church. As a master and slave are sitting in the same room, maybe the master of the slave are sitting in the same room, maybe on the same row since they're family and all. And they're being reminded that, man, the ground is really level here in God's house. That Christ has leveled us. There are no masters here. There's no slaves here. There's just brothers and sisters in Christ, all in equal need of a Savior. See, the cross is the great leveler. For Seneca, it was chance. Remember? See, chance is to blame for whether or not you're going to be a slave or a master. 
So, so treat your slave like a human being. We have a different motivation here. We have a different reminder because we have a different leveler altogether, and it's Christ. What a beautiful setting it must have been as they take the supper together in the Ephesian church 2,000 years ago where a master grabs the, the bread and the cup, and he takes it around, and he serves his slave. Man, the church is unique and has been for 2,000 years. Oh, so unique 2,000 years ago. It must have been scandalous. It must have been going around all over Ephesus. Do you hear what's happening over there in that Christian church? In the way is what they called early, early Christians. Do you hear how they treat one another? Do you hear that masters speak to slaves like their peers? What's going on there? Well, we can tell them what's going on there is Christ has leveled it. There are no masters here. There's no slaves here. There's no bosses here. There's no employees here. There's just brothers and sisters in Christ. It is the most beautifully flat organization in the world. It's called the church. Amen. Does anybody enjoy that? Man, maybe we need to be slaves for a while before we can appreciate the beauty in that. Ah, that's good news. And here's the fourth thing, and here's really what I feel like is the most important point of the morning. I mentioned there's a centerpiece of the, the message for the slave. And there's a centerpiece for the message for the master, for the command for the slave and the command for the master, and it's the motivation. Okay? The motivation for the slave, the sort of that centerpiece was serve and obey with trembling and fear, with singleness of heart, as you would Christ. That's the motivation for the slave. And the motivation for the master, also there's a centerpiece there. He who is both their master and yours. That's the motivation for the master. Christ is the motivation and the centerpiece in both of these commands. I wanted to give it a special term this morning. It, it is a term that I, I hesitate to use because it sounds sort of theological and academic, but I actually am going to use it anyway. And here's why I'm going to use it, because I love new words because they give you a new parking place for a new thought. And I want you to have a new parking place for a new thought this morning because I want you to carry this parking place into your office tomorrow morning. I want you to carry it into your home since we've been talking about the household code. I want you to carry it into your ordinary Tuesday. And here's the word for motivation that, that fueled everybody in the household code. And we're, I'm going to show you this here in a moment. Here's the term. Christological motivation. Christological motivation. See, it runs as a thread throughout this entire passage. Just as what we looked at today in verse 5. As you would obey Christ. In verse 6, as slaves of Christ. In verse 7, as you would the Lord. In verse 8, by the Lord. In verse 9, both there and your master. There's a Christological motivation that runs throughout people fulfilling our roles in the house, in the household code. A Christological motivation. Here it is for wives in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Here it is for the husbands in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Here it is for children in, in chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents 
in the Lord. Here it is for fathers in verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. See, here's the shocker. Here's what's just so crazy. If you were to visit Seneca's home 2,000 years ago, you would see a home that's ordered. You would see a wife that's following her husband. You'd probably see a husband serving his wife. You would probably see children obeying their parents. You would probably see slaves obeying their masters. And you would probably see masters treating their slaves like human beings. But all of that godlessly. Can you let that hit you for a minute? All of that godlessly. What makes it a Christian home is not order. That's not what makes you Christian. What makes you Christian in the Christian home is the motivation. Lord, don't just give me an ordered home where everything's tidy and nice, where everybody's playing their roles, but we're doing it godlessly. We're just as lost and hell-bound as Seneca. We have a Christological motivation. This should invade and saturate every area of our life, not just our home, but our workplace, our Tuesday, our den, our cubicle. Why do I want to work as unto the Lord so I'll get a raise? That's not a bad thing, but that's not a Christological motivation. Why do I want to be a great boss and build an awesome business and take care of my people? Because I really want them to have a great experience and think well of me. Hi, Seneca. <laughs> Hope that goes well for you in your godless pursuit. Do you see the difference? Man, all this work this morning, all that we've gotten us to, is to this major point. And I think this is so significant for us in 2018. Across the page in chapter 4, listen to this passage. This, this is, I want you to just hear this passage with a new set of ears. I'm not bringing new text into it so much to unpack it. It's to just show you the, what, how profound of what we consider this morning, how profound it is. In chapter 4, verse 17, Paul's writing to this same church. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Let's just insert Seneca in there. Or the Stoics. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Stoics do in the futility of their minds. Man, their houses are ordered, though. Whoo-wee. They take good care of their people. Mm. Man, their wives are submitting to their husbands, and their kids are obeying their parents. And man, do you see how well they treat their slaves? Whoo. But we're called to no longer walk like those folks. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Listen to this next passage. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Man, I think that's the point of this morning. That's what we've been doing for this last 30 minutes or however long this has been. We've been learning Christ to realize that it's not the Christian thing to be a good employee. It's not the Christian thing to be a great, great boss. It's the Christian thing to be a good employee 
because of the master that you serve. Period. If you get a raise and your promotion, your wealth are all up, that's gravy. Christological motivation should drive you in everything that we do. Man, that's the point here. Man, be a great employee in Jesus' name. Be a great boss in Jesus' name. Christological motivation is what sets us apart from the other, other ordered households in our community. Do you understand that? You understand? That's what makes us salty, bright, and aromatic. Not just an ordered home. The Stoics got that down. It's that it's ordered in Jesus' name. It's what makes us different from the ordered household of the Stoic. And chance is not our motivation. Christ is. Do you understand that? Christ is our motivation for a wife to submit to her husband. If you have any other motivation, it ain't going to happen. Christ is our motivation for husbands to love their wives. Period. If you're going to do it based on her lovability, it's going to be a roller coaster for her and you both. Children obey your parents because of Christ, not because they're always always these wise sage parents that are always going to make the perfect decision because that'll be a roller coaster for you and for them as well. And fathers, don't exasperate your children, not because your children are awesome and amazing, but in Jesus' name, don't exasperate your children. The Christological motivation has got to fuel us in every aspect. As slaves follow their masters, and as masters lead their slaves. Who Christ is and what he has done for us should influence how we treat one another. In all of our various roles. And it should treat or should condition how we live in our version of the ancient Roman Empire 2,000 years later. See, we can turn all our duties into acts of faith if Christ is invited in. Man, I wanted you to have that special new parking place because I want you to have a special uh, thought that might go with you to the office on Monday, that might enter that quiet, ordinary space on Tuesday, that might enter that kitchen. 4.30, the bewitching hour. Any home have 4, 4.30, 5 o'clock, the bewitching hour where kids start to get hungry and people start walking in the house after a hard day? That maybe a Christological motivation could condition how we move in those moments. You know when it does, what happens? There's a name for it. When a Christological motivation conditions... A guy and a girl when they're dating, and they're thinking, man, everybody else in this world is having sex. Why don't we? When a guy and a girl who are Christians say, we're not going to do that, not just just because God says we shouldn't. We're not going to do that because of Christ, because of what he won for us, because of who who he is and who he's made us to be. That's a Christological motivation. Invading a relationship and a moment and an opportunity and it makes it worship. That's the name. That, that's the word I wanted to give it. Worship. Man, when you go to an office to a job that you may hate, and you're like, man, I really have a tough time with that sermon that I heard this morning. But you, you know what? I'm going to serve well in that job, and I'm going to do that in Christ's name. There's a word for that. It's called worship. 
And employers and leaders, when you lead and love well in Jesus' name, there's a word for that. It's called worship.